You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a music PR firm that specializes in music innovation, music tech, and so forth. And as our Music Tectonics listeners know, we do a lot of online events and in-person events. And along the way, we stumble onto some of you, very cool, innovative people. And that's who we're bringing on to the, the podcast today is one of those interesting people who has come along for the ride, has come to Music Tectonics events, and uh, is it has that innovator mindset. Interestingly, he's an attorney. This is Han Kim. He's an attorney at Shepard Mullen in Los Angeles. Han's practice focuses on transactional entertainment matters that span from the cutting edge intersection of technology and entertainment to traditional entertainment industries. He advises clients on business transactions related to music, television, feature film, podcast, metaverse, VR, AR, blockchain, NFTs, NFTs esports, and games. Um, if you if you just met him at first, you wouldn't say, "Oh, there's an attorney." You'd say, "This guy's kind of like an." entrepreneur. He's like a he's he's a really innovative thinker and he was just named uh, one of the Billboard top music lawyers by Billboard magazine. Han Kim, congrats and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to speaking with you. Yeah, let's let's dive in. It's super fun. I don't know that we've had an attorney on the podcast before. Um, but let's let's start off with you. Why are you interested in the music tech space? Why have we found you? Well, yeah, it, it starts from, you know, me being in the music industry. I, before becoming an attorney, uh, I always wanted to be in the music business. So uh, I really got my feet dirty. And my first experience in the music industry was working for one of the big four K-pop companies called JYP Entertainment uh, back in 2009 or so when they were trying to break into the music industry. Uh, at that time, K-pop wasn't as popular as now. Um, so... It was been a kind of an uphill battle, but it, it was my first opportunity to work in the music industry. And after that, I worked in uh, EMI Capital, a uh, digital sales group uh, at the cutting edge at that time as well of the intersection uh, when the music has been kind of transforming into the digital world. And after that, I went to NYU Music Business Masters to learn more about the music industry from a bird's eye point of view. Uh, and had also had opportunities to work at uh, booking agencies um, and get, get to learn different sectors of how little uh, different industries interact with each other. Uh, and after that, um, I realized that to succeed in the music business, you may have to be tied to a talent. So I was like, I'm going to try my luck and manage some artists. Um, and also to buy a little bit more time, I actually went to law school. I was like, well, well music intellectual property contracts, I'm sure it's going to be helpful. Uh, and at that, so that's how I went to law school while trying to work with artists on a day-to-day -day basis. So that really kind of gave me a pretty good understanding of how a uh, realistic experience on how the music industry works um, while also pursuing my legal career. And once I became a lawyer, I realized there's a lot more exciting things happening in the music tech space and a lot of innovation. And of course, I'm happy to do recording agreements, producer agreements all day. I found myself being a lot more excited about creating new business models with entrepreneurs and trying to figure out how to disrupt the industry. So that's kind of how I uh, really got focused in the music tech world. And, you know, Music Tectonics is one of the leading 
conferences and voices for that. So that's why I naturally gravitated to this. Nice. Glad you found us. We found you. Um, it is a cool fit. I, I like to hear that strong kind of like music industry orientation, even before you went to law school. Uh, not that you're just opportunistically moving into the music tech space, but it's really kind of in your in your blood in a sense. Um, yeah, of course. And so we have a lot of these kind of innovative startups, founders listening to the podcast. What are some of the most com common challenges that these types of music tech startups have? So generally new music tech startups um, have the difficulty of figuring out who to talk to. Say I want to work with a particular artist um, and, you know, for my, for my new tech startup, who should I even talk to? And that's also kind of a conundrum because there's too many, so many participants, right? There's the artist, there's the label, there's the publisher, there's the artist, there's the manager, uh, there's the agent. You just, you just need to figure out who to talk to. So, I think navigating that um, industry uh, for different needs, uh, you know, working with a professional consultant or you know, a lawyer or someone else that can navigate that, it's really helpful. Um, there's a lot of information online on the different types of licenses that you may require, but it, it's difficult to sometimes find the right person to talk to. So that's one um, kind of common challenge that they have. And another one is also, convincing the music industry that your disruptive technology is going to be helpful for them. You know, they've been working under a particular framework for decades. And even though your ideas may be completely brilliant and they may be intrigued, changing their kind of day-to-day -day business habits is going to be very difficult. And it's going to take time to change their perception. And, you know, it will take multiple proof of concepts to really change everyone's habits. How, how does that, as, a, as, a, as an attorney working with startups, what can you do to help make that convincing case? How does that impact the, the sort of the legal aspect of those uh, contracts or negotiations relationships? Right. So for music tech companies, oftentimes we as lawyers are not just really acting as uh, advising on the legal aspects only. We also help with coming up with the business affairs, the business models, and communicating why this is helpful for the music industry. And uh, a lot of the times based on our prior relationships and we've done so many deals with these kind of uh, music industry participants, we are able to communicate <clears throat> the benefits in a way that they can understand as well, right? It may not be as apparent to them from the beginning. So we sometimes act as the bridge between the two worlds and communicate and let them convince them that, hey, this is actually gonna be helpful in the long run or immediately. So that's, you know, sometimes the role as a lawyer is not just, oh, let me help you at legal risks. It's about um, creating a pro good business models and advising them on how things worked to, in the past and how it, you know, how it could be changed within a particular framework. It's really interesting to think about that because if, you know, the first few times you work with a lawyer might be with, with contracts or something like that. And uh, at some point you start to realize there's actually a bit of creativity in what's, and I, and I don't mean that in a sense like, um, <laughs> like, like uh, people are just making up new phrases or whatever, but, but like in terms of structuring, structuring deals, you know, the first, you know, the first time if you're in the music industry, you, you look at a contract and you look and you're like, I have a choice. I either sign this or I don't sign this. It's sign this or the deal's off. You do it a couple times and you start to realize, well, maybe there's some 
phrases in here we can change. Maybe there's a little more flexibility. So it's cool to hear you talking about even broader, like the actual business model you get to be creative around with helping them understand kind of what, what's possible there. Yeah, for sure. I think what's really exciting about working with music tech startups and entrepreneurs is sometimes there's it's never been done in the music industry before. That's why it's we're literally coming up from a blank page. We need to come up with all these different provisions that will be applicable to the music industry folks. Um, so that's what's really exciting from my end as a lawyer uh, working with entrepreneurs. Awesome. Look, we're going to take a quick break for uh, a special message. And when we come back, I want to dig in a tiny bit more about licensing and when to get started. We'll be right back. Eleanor here. We're giving you a chance to win a free badge to our October conference in the Los Angeles area. We're using a viral marketing platform built for musicians to activate and reward their fans. This is your chance to try it out as a user and maybe win a prize. Enter the competition at our website, musictectonics.com, and follow the instructions to share our message, follow our socials, and refer your friends. Everything you do will score you points. Earn enough points and you could win a free conference badge or a deep discount. This competition ends Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. Sign up for our Music Tectonics newsletter to find out about future contests and discounts. It's all at musictectonics.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, we're back. Han, I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned music licensing earlier in the conversation. When is the best time for startups to think about music licensing? Well, if you are a business that has music as a core um, to your and is fundamental to your business, you should be thinking about music licensing from the very beginning when you build your mu- uh, business model, right? Just, just like how you think about different parts of how, you know, distribution, production, music licensing uh, needs to be thought out from the beginning. You know, you may not be thinking about, oh, let me do a blanket license and get all the rights possible right now. That may be financially not feasible, but you need to have a course of map to be like, okay, at this point, I want to be uh, at, at a certain point where I have certain licenses or at a certain point, I want to have have the entire catalog. But you know, at the same time, you should be thinking about who's your audience, who's your target customers. Do they listen to all types of music? Maybe they only listen to a particular genre. Maybe maybe that's the case. And if that's so, you should be targeting specific labels and publishers and artists that are active in that space. So um, you have to be very strategic about your music licensing and think about it from the very beginning of your business. That's, I, I mean, again, I'm hearing sort of like this sort of strategic perspective that you have that goes beyond sort of somebody just saying, hey, we need to, we need to do these licenses. Can you give us some, some, some template contracts so we can get these licenses done? But really thinking through, well, do you need all of them? You know, or, or you know, um, and, and, you know, the other piece of this that's kind of interesting is it feels like there was a moment in time where new models, new digital or, or tech models were felt like they were kind of threatening to a lot of labels or publishers. And now that streaming has sort of built up this pretty strong base of revenue coming into the industry, it's almost finally unlocked this idea that, well, there could be other creative ways of approaching licensing or licensing music for new purposes that nobody ever saw. So I appreciate hearing that perspective. Exactly. I mean, there are 
several new use cases that has been incredibly, you know, changing of the music industry. You know, one example is you know, Peloton and how uh, music uh, licensing from that has been, um, in, they're definitely an influencer and it's actually changing people's perception and discovery of new music. Um, yeah, Peloton is a firm client and we do a lot of music licensing work for them. So they're a very exciting um, uh, client and, you know, I, there's like a perfect case of how uh, new technology can interact with music and um, the myriad of issues that come from that. You know, earlier you also mentioned, um, you know, working with big names in terms of talent. What are some considerations that startups should be thinking about if they're if their business rests on having some big names kind of attract users and 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 uses and and so forth? What 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 should they be thinking about there? So when you're working with big talents, you need to understand you're working with a lot of big egos, and you will have to be flexible. Um, and also, at the same time, to gain their respect, you need to know where to hold your ground and stay firm where you have to. If not, the artist team is just going to roll over you, right? So um, another thing is, you know, it's very dynamic. So don't be too surprised if an artist team pulls the rug out of your, under, you know, under you in the 11th hour. That's very possible. You just need to be you know be calm and make sure to ensure to deliver the benefits that you're delivering to them and why they should be working with you um i think also something that you need to be thinking about when you're working with big talents there's also um there's a many different parties that are uh, working with the artist and the label the publisher the agents uh, and the managers and their respective uh, incentives are not completely aligned. Mm. So you need to be very strategic and understand the little nuances when discussing and approaching these parties. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, that's, those are the kind of the big high level things that you should be thinking about. So if, if you are kind of set on having certain artist names associated, and I know we're talking very generally because music tech covers, so, I mean, it could, it could be a stre streaming service. That's like the traditional, like, what's that disruptive model? But now it could, it could be so many, so many other things. It could be a creator platform or a marketplace. It could be a fandom uh, app. It could be, you know, a, a social video thing. There's, it's kind of hard to answer some of these questions. <laughs> generally speaking but if if you know you want to go out for have have a name associated with uh, an app where do you start do you talk to the label do you talk to the publisher do you talk to managers are, are agents involved how, how do you know where to start yeah as mentioned i think it's important to understand that these different parties uh, have different incentives and what's important to them so um but my general recommendation is first start with the manager. The mm -hmm. manager is the one who works most closely with the artist and they're kind of like the quarterback where they communicate with the labels, the publishers, the agents, and the publicists. So um, the management team is able to actually kind of coordinate uh, different interested parties. Um, and you know, because the incentives are not aligned, uh, they may want different things, but if you heavily rely on the management team to kind of communicate and stress that this is important to them. Um, also, I think it's very important for um, 
you as a music tech startup to understand where that artist stands uh, within that particular label, right? Are they a super high priority artist or are they mid or are they not or just a growing? It will really depend on that to how well uh, you can get these different parties to cooperate with you and certain interests, um, you know, points that you want to make sure to deliver can be done based on the priority of the artist to the label or the publishers. So that's something to also be thinking about. And sometimes when you're working with big labels or publishers, uh, artists, like they're a massive company. So you'll have to be smart about who am I talking to and where does this person sit within the organization? If they say yes, is that really a yes or do they need to go up to a few more senior folks to get approval? So being cognizant about where the you know particular rep sits within the hierarchy is also important. Makes a lot of sense. So um, let's move let's move into kind of the innovation part of this conversation. What what are some of the cool things that you're seeing emerge right now that get you excited? Well, yeah, one of the cool things that has been incredibly exciting was uh, Amaze VR, which is also a music tectonic um, friend. Yes, um, and they are a uh, VR immersive VR concert producers where they um, produce work with high level talents to do four to five songs and create an incredible VR concert experience. Um, what's cool about them is that they've able to create a partner with a theater chains such as AMC to have an actual live immersive experience. So just uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I went to AMC and um, was able to experience the uh, Megan Thee Stallion uh, VR concert, which was incredible. It, it was just, I mean, you know, we've been working on that project for you know, years and then to see it finally come to life has been uh, such an incredible experience. So, um, yeah, so that was a one good use case of collaborating with a very high level talent, uh, Megan Thee Stallion. And we had to work with the label, the management, the publishers to clear all the rights and get everyone to come to see this vision. And Amaze VR has been, this is a completely new um, use case of music. It's, it's not it's not exactly a live concert. It's, it's, it's something that's com complementary in many ways to the live industry. Um, so, uh, you know, working on that project has been very rewarding and being able to see that has been incredible. Yeah. And, and for those who are listening, that, that tour in theaters is going on right now. Um, it goes through currently through early July and hits several major markets. I think in, uh, we still have, I think, uh, Chicago, Dallas, Houston, Atlanta, Miami, DC, New York, uh, maybe a couple others that are still coming up so people can have that experience. I think you go in the theater, they hand out headsets, there's stuff on the screen and there's stuff on the headset. There's some interactivity and yeah, they're building a whole, a whole new model. So, um, in terms of how to experience music and what that form format is <laughs> in the end too, what else, what else is emerging that, that gets you excited? Um, for now, I think there's a lot of innovation trying to fix the problems of the live touring business. Mm -hmm. um, and especially uh, now that fans are so much more connected to their artists that 
um, through social media and other means that there so there could be many technologies and platforms that be created that could help the process of making sure um, live shows are done well uh, without it's a risky business as you know as you may know where many of the times the promoters need to put up a lot of money up front and just make hope for the best of the tickle sales out. But I think there's a lot of innovations that are happening now that are allowing people to reduce the risk, but also increase the pie. So I think that's one of the real space that I, I'm seeing a lot more exciting things happening, especially now after you know, post pandemic, um, people are, are trying to figure out how best to do this, uh, you know, navigate this business without losing so much money. Are you, are you talking about actual contracts for performance? There, there's a shift there? Or are you talking about live streaming? Or, or what do you mean? Well, it's, it's with how to, you know, structure tours, right? Giving tools for managements and uh, agents to structure touring in a way that is less risky for all parties than mm. increasing the pie. So there are businesses now out there that are trying to solve those issues by bringing the fans into the process earlier, right? Mm. Right now, the fans are very much uh, outside. They, they, they buy a ticket once it's, um, you know, it's announced, but with the social interactivities and connections that, you know, when they're happening now, they're trying to involve these fans earlier in the process, which, you know, ultimately uh, increases the pie and reduces the risk for everyone. I love it. I, we haven't had many people come on to the podcast to talk about evolutions that are post-pandemic in the live touring area, other to say, other than, well, we, do, we did a lot of, about live streaming throughout the pandemic, but other than to say, hey, touring's coming back like with like like never before and there's a little bit of concern that maybe people have too much choice and and ticket sales you know there's this stop go mentality that's happening post pandemic um super intriguing to hear about what you're what you're talking about with that actual deal structure changing and bringing fans into the the sort of risk uh, rewards <laughs> uh, equation right so yeah i think there's a lot of innovation that could happen there but again here it, it, the business has been operating in a certain structure for decades. It will be interesting to see how these companies are able to, um, you know, really change uh, the perception and business practices. And, that, and and being part of that conversation and strategizing with uh, tech entrepreneurs has been, you know, it's been an exciting kind of uh, discussion. I love it. I mean, you know, since we do organize a conference, we do take some risk when we book speakers and 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 book venues and and so forth. We lived through it first with our um, brush fires our first year. We had to move our, our venue within 24 hours. Luckily, the venue we booked was really cool about it, and uh, we were able to just move over to another hotel. And uh, and of course, during the the pandemic, we had another hotel booked, and so we know about that those risks. We 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 haven't done like a crowdfunding campaign to to sell tickets which would be kind of an interesting model. Um, but I, now that you've got me thinking about lots of possibilities. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there are ways to reduce risks, but in, a, in, a, in the right way. Um, you know, and that companies need to be really cognizant about not only industry people, but how the fans are percepting whatever tech that you're presenting to them. 
So, yeah. Yeah. Any any other emerging things before we take another quick break that that you've been thinking about? Like, because I love like, get you know, hearing your perspective is really interesting. A, you're on the other side of the country from me. B, you're in a different sector of the music industry. Um, were there more emerging things you wanted to bring up? Well, yeah. For me, right now, a big focus is um, you know trying to figure out how music licensing. Uh, can you know, I think a lot of companies are coming up with uh, catalogs that are free to license to a lot of kind of these tech companies mm. or licensors to creating content. So um, there's a lot more activities there where people are trying to make catalogs available, uh, music music available for these folks because music licensing has has always been a um, difficult thing. Um, it's been great for lawyers to make, you know, you know, be in between and try to solve it for people. But I think it's, you know, certain, certain times, like, I don't think a lawyer should be involved. I think it, the process should be a little bit more streamlined. So I think there's a lot of tech companies trying to solve that issue of music licensing and all the headaches that, that surround it. It's, it's crazy how complicated it has been. And, and partly, I think there was just resistance, right? There was just like... If we do these fractions of pennies, is it going to add up to enough? Are we going to, you know, are we going to kind of lose control of the brand of how these artists and, and songwriters' music's going to be used? And now I think everyone realizes there's the possibilities there, but there's still a lot of friction that still could be removed. Like how much of a catalog, or how do you use that catalog? What have we, what have we granted the license to, or how do we ingest the catalog in the way that you need it? Whether it's for, like you mentioned, VR or gaming or sync or for um, stem use somehow or remixes like every single one of those things has different implications yeah for sure and and siphoning that and going through the different bundle of rights that an artist has and making sure both parties feel comfortable is, is a difficult balance to make awesome all right we're, like i said we're going to take one more quick break and when we get back han i want to get sci-fi we'll be right back does your company belong at the center of the conversation about music, tech, and innovation? Listen, you should consider sponsoring the Music Tectonics Conference. It takes place in person October 25th through the 27th, 2022, in the Music Tech Hub of Los Angeles. Top-tier sponsorships are selling fast, but we still have a spot for you, whether your business is a hungry startup or an industry leader already. Every sponsorship level comes with an exhibitor booth at the Lowe's Santa Monica Beach Hotel on October 26th, the main conference hub for keynotes and panels. Your company will be at this epicenter of music, tech, and innovation throughout the event. That's just one perk of being a sponsor at Music Tectonics. You could be a guest on this podcast or even play a role in conference programming. Interested? Let's talk. Go to musictectonics.com to start the conversation with our contact form. And now, back to the show. All right, we're back. And like I said, Han, I make our guests do this. We want to get sci-fi. So what I mean by that, Han, is if you kind of project out forward, we talked about some emerging things before the break, but now let's talk a little bit future forward. What are the things that you're seeing that, that are coming out with a, a, even a stronger, like indetermined future <laughs> that, that kind of are, are maybe paving the path for future licensing models or future um, uh, agreements or ways in which music's getting in engaged? What, what do you, what, where, where are you going five to 10 years from now, Han? 
Uh, I am very much um, thinking about and working on various projects that, um, you know, is really geared towards the future now. And that is uh, kind of immersive communication, immersive um, experiences in, you know, in the metaverse and or the different metaverses. Um, and, you know, that all ties into the concept of NFTs and really right now i am very much bullish in that world and to me i don't think i think a lot more people are thinking about it and talking about it right now with um you know facebook's name change and a lot of kind of momentum from tech companies uh, providing hardware so this immersive experience can be possible uh, but the real implications of these are just super fascinating for me where um yeah i think we should explore more it's interesting when you say uh, metaverse and then metaverses. It's interesting because I've seen a lot of conversation online. There seem to be some perspectives that there will only be one metaverse and that somehow everything is going to connect up to the single metaverse. But I, I, so far what I've seen is people building like their own metaverse ecosystems and they don't necessarily connect, but you still have the same, I mean, it's not interconnected, but you still have a, a, a different sort of reality sort of experience. You know, like when we did music tectonics inside a, we basically rented a metaverse venue, you still have that experience of being an avatar, of ha having a different sense of place, a sense, a sense of thereness without actually leaving the home or the office, but then f you feel like you've been somewhere. So to me, it, it still, quote, counts, right? It's not, even though it's not interconnected the way some people say, are, do you think there will ultimately be a single metaverse that all, everything connects to, or do you think there's going to be, continue to be like multiple systems? Yeah, I think the, the, the concept of interoperability of different metaverses is, is definitely a hot topic uh, right now. Um, I think the financial incentive structures of different companies make it slightly difficult for the interoperability to come to uh, life in the near future. But I think over time, you know, when once it becomes uh, the market playing field uh, reduces to few folks right there's going to be few players in there uh, maybe these these different metaverses can come together and be like hey let's uh you know connect our system so it'll make sense i mean the one big reason that's preventing that is you know different metaverse platform owners want to control that and keep it uh, within their control because they can charge um, platform fees on various transactions within within that particular metaverse. And if you're able to move things out, that means you're taking value out of your particular metaverse. And that's something that uh, some companies may be um, against their self-interest to let that happen. But over time, I think people will demand that um, and we'll see how it how it plays out. But obviously, if you buy uh, fancy Nike shoes in one one metaverse, um, you definitely want to be able to use that somewhere else. Um, and, you know, and because you, does that mean you have to buy it again here in a new metaverse? I mean, that just seems like uh, against then I yeah, that just seems wrong, right? Yeah, um, I've, so. I've mentioned this. It's it's kind of like you go to an amphitheater and you see a show and you buy a T-shirt. And when you leave, you have to hang it up and you can't use it again yeah. until you come back to the amphitheater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that is that is not that's not fair, really. That shouldn't be the case. So 
I think people demand some type of interoperability or, you know, I, I think we've seen some different metaverses kind of collaborating, you know, saying like, hey, if you buy it from this source, you can also use it here and we'll honor that in our platform. So I think there's some instances of already happening. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. And, and, you know, to distinguish, you mentioned NFTs as well, which don't necessarily have to be within a metaverse, but that interoperability could be powered by NFTs, right? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, the reason why I said interop NFTs are relevant to the metaverse is because NFTs are cryptographically unique, that it can function as a certificate of ownership. And once you can independently verify that you own a particular in metaverse item. Commerce is possible. I can buy that from you and certificate uh, that buy that NFT and just say, oh, I, I for certain know that I'm buying a particular in metaverse item. So um, I think NFTs are very important to the metaverse context because it allows commerce to happen in a bit more uh, with certainty. Right. So like, how do you know if you buy something from someone that's going to be the particular item that we're talking about? The NFTs kind of provide that solution by saying, hey, this is a here's a certificate of ownership. And if you buy this, you you buy this uh, in 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 metaverse item. So, yeah, that's that's kind of how I think NFTs relate to metaverse and. And, and, and the metaverse and specifically in the music, music context, I think the most exciting thing is, hey, in a live concert, you know, at most you can see like 100,000 to 300,000 over a couple weekends. But once you have concerts in the metaverse, you've seen you know, millions of people show up to a particular concert. Like I think, I think in Travis Scott, it was north of 20 million people seeing the Epic Games, um, you know, Fortnite concert, right? Um, which to me means so much more opportunities, so much more ways to connect with different folks at the same time. And I think music industry is also, you know, I'm very open to it and you can see a lot more concerts happening in there, um, which leads to so many various um, music licensing issues. Um, and, you know, I think the music industry is starting to figure that out. And, you know, we've seen various concerts that already happened. I, I like that you bring it to a point of sort of like removing friction that that, you know, that once you create these these like metaverse experiences, it's opening up to more opportunity. And and I mean, like to go full circle from your comment about the live music industry, creativity around risk there, there can be a lot less risk in a, in a digital environment that, you know, like once you get it sort of scalable, you can remove some of some of the risk. It's not the same experience necessarily, but then again, maybe people want a different experience too. Um, but, but I like that you're focused on that increase of access in how you think about it as well. So, so go, before we leave the, uh, the NFT conversation, um, just yesterday, I was talking to a group of people, and, and someone referred to it as the kind of the wild west of the music industry right now. So, does that mean that th there's going to be some some kind of mismatched mismatched expectations between sellers and buyers, or or, or um, partners, or does it just mean there's a lot of creativity out there? Yeah, I think something to understand about specifically around NFTs is. Um, just because you own an NFT, which is a token, doesn't mean that you own the underlying asset that represents the, the NFT, right? So you can represent, uh, just because you, like, generally what happens is 
you know, the NFT holder gets a certain limited license with, with respect to the underlying asset, which in this case, uh, digital asset is a music file or other utilities that come with it. So when you say you own an NFT, it doesn't necessarily mean that you own that music. It means that you have certain rights related to the underlying music. So that's something that you need to kind of understand. And, you know, also music rights holders need to be very cognizant of that and be careful when you draft your license agreement when you mint a particular NFT. Gotcha. So you're really talking about IP at that point. Like you think you're you think you're buying something, but <laughs> being really clear about what you're buying. Yeah, exactly. And part most likely you're getting a certain license to it that non you know maybe you get some profit participation, which you know runs afoul of securities laws. And there's a lot of uh, difficulties and um, legal concepts to think about, but. Mostly, you know, you, you get you, you get it for certain non-commercial use, um, for personal use, and you can do certain things with it, but you don't get the full pie uh, copyright. But maybe you can. Maybe you could also. Maybe an artist chooses that, hey, like, if you own this NFT, you actually own the entire copyright set, and that's the artist's choice. So, you know, the, from the artist team's perspective, you need to be smart about what kind of licenses you're granting. Nice. So in this whole sci-fi world, we talked about a bunch of different things. Is there anything else that startups should be thinking about that they might not realize as all this, this new uh, methods of, of commerce, um, is, you know, licensing, all that kind of stuff? What, what else should they be thinking about that they might not realize right out of the gate? Well, just like any industry, I think the music industry is very much a people's business. Um, you should be really going out there and, and meet different industry players to develop a relationship and a reputation. So uh, even if you have the greatest idea and the most revolutionary idea, if you can't connect with people in the music industry on a personal level, it's going to be difficult. It's not going to be as easy. So um, I think that's something that you should be thinking about fundamentally when all these cool things are happening. Like you need to be getting out there, talking to people and trying to uh, connect. Hey, I love it. I, I knew there was a reason that we connected and, and got you on the podcast. That's the perfect reason why people should come to the Music Tectonics Conference in L.A. in October. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, just. Come out here. Uh, I, I'm here, so I'm gonna definitely going to be there. So let's try to connect and um, build the future together. Awesome, Mahan. It's been a blast. Thank you so much. I feel like I, I learned a ton. I got some insights into your thinking, and I love how accessible you make it. I don't feel like I'm talking to somebody that I have to speak another legal language with or anything. So that was super, super helpful. Han Kim, he's an attorney at Shepard Mullen in LA. Again, he was just named Billboard Top Music Lawyer. Congrats on that, Han, and, and great having you on the, the podcast. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, see you soon. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know? You can dig deeper into all our episodes with the show notes at musictectonics.com. While you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference, sign up for our newsletter to get updates, or get the Music Tectonics app for music tech news. Everything we do explores seismic shifts that shake up music and technology the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and find me, Dimitri Vitsa, 
if you can spell it, on LinkedIn. Bye-bye. You're listening to Music Tectonics.